Good morning. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does, thou, does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever um, thought about how disappointing life is sometimes? Some of you are thinking, um, only every day. But even when life is at its very best, there's something about life in this world that just falls short. One of my favorite examples of this is the movie Midnight in Paris. Owen Wilson plays a writer named Gil who goes to Paris, but the whole time he's there, he can't stop fantasizing about Paris of the 1920s because to him, that was the truly golden time. That was the time of great writers like Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he feels like, if only I could get back to that time, then I would really be living. And so one night, his wish comes true. He's magically transported back to Paris of the 1920s, and he gets to meet Hemingway and Fitzgerald. He gets to hang out with Pablo Picasso and see Josephine Baker dance. And he feels like now he's truly living. But while he's there, he meets a young woman named Adriana. And for Adriana, the real golden time isn't the 1920s, it's really the 1890s, the time of great artists like Toulouse-Lautrec and horse-drawn carriages. And so one night, Gil and Adriana are magically transported back to the 1890s. And now Adriana's the one who feels like she's really living because she's found her golden time and she wants to stay there. And Gil is confused about this because he feels like, Adriana, you already live in the golden time. And she says, what are you talking about? It's the present. It's dull. And finally, Gil starts to get it because he realizes that he feels disappointed with his present time, and so he wants to go back to the 1920s, but now he's met someone from the 1920s, and she feels disappointed with her present time, so she wants to go back to the 1890s, and the people in the 1890s want to go back to some other time. Everybody's unhappy. And as this realization creeps over him, he says, Adriana, if you stay here, 
and this becomes your present, then pretty soon you'll start imagining that some other time was really the golden time. That's what the present is. It's unsatisfying because life is unsatisfying. What do we do with the disappointments of life? The world offers many strategies. We'll talk about some of those in a bit. But here's the big question. What if there was something available to you right now that didn't erase your disappointment, but transformed your experience of disappointment by offering you a a taste of a coming joy for which this present world is headed? Let me say that again. What if there was something available to you right now that didn't erase all of your experiences of disappointment in this world, but transformed your experience of disappointment in this world by giving you a taste of a future joy for which this present world is headed. I know that's a big what if, but if that was real, would you be interested in tasting something like that? We're in a series in which we're looking at various strange encounters with Jesus. Um, This story we just read, Jesus does a miracle, but it's not like other miracles. He doesn't heal anyone or feed anyone or raise anyone from the dead. All it looks like Jesus is doing is saving a wedding party that looked like it was headed for disappointment. What does that mean? And especially, how does that help us in the midst of our disappointments? Well, let's find out by taking a look at three things in this story. We're going to look at the wine, we're going to look at the jars, and we're going to look at the bridegroom. Okay? The wine, the jars, the bridegroom. First, let's take a look at the wine. This story takes place during a wedding. Now, weddings are always a big deal, but back then it was a really big deal. Because in a shame-honor culture like that, um, if you made a mistake and ran out of something, that was a major social fail. In fact, one scholar I read said that you could even potentially be sued by your guests. That's why this is such a big deal. So at the very beginning, it says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, when it says the wine ran out, that word ran out is a word that means to be lacking or to be in need. Older translations say when the wine failed, which is a very poetic way of putting it, but I really like that. When the wine failed, So when Jesus turns the water into wine, at the very least, he is rescuing this young couple from shame, social embarrassment, and possibly even a lawsuit um, in order to do something really wonderful in their lives. But there's way more than that going on here, because in the Gospel of John, he calls Jesus' miracles signs. That means they're always pointing to something else. Not only is Jesus doing something amazing in the lives of people in that present moment, but what he's doing always points to something beyond that present moment. So what is the wine pointing to? Well, we actually talk about this quite frequently here at Central West End Church. The wine is pointing to the main storyline of the whole Bible. Now, this would have been especially vivid for any Jewish person in the first century. The main storyline of the Bible is all about God's promise that one day he was going to rescue his people from their enemies, from evil, injustice, suffering, and oppression, and that God would transform this world into a new creation. And wine and feasting is a primary image for that new creation vision. So one of the classic examples of this 
is from Isaiah 25. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. This is God's vision for the world. And yes, it's poetry, so we could say, well, it's just symbolism. But over and over again in the Bible, the symbolism it uses to describe God's ultimate vision for the world is never God destroying this world and carrying people away to some disembodied heaven. It's always God renewing this physical, material world. Therefore, wine is a very potent image, wine and feasting, a very potent symbol of the joy towards which this world is headed. But this is a joy that you can taste with your body, with your senses. It's kind of like, you know, how every week, you know, we, we're handing out these prepackaged communion servings, which are so not what we want. But even still, I don't know about you, but when that juice hits my tongue, it's like, like a little mini explosion on the tongue. That's because it's something that you taste. It, 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 you taste. Tasting is something you do with your body. You don't think about tasting something. You just taste it. Now, here's why this is so important. Think about all the things in this world that, that give us our greatest joy. They also all happen to be the source of our deepest disappointments. Because life in this world is constantly getting our hopes up, but then also constantly breaking our hearts because the reality never lives up to the promise. In other words, in this world, the joys of this world are always running out. They're always coming up lacking. In this world, the wine always fails. So how do we respond to that? Like I said, there are different strategies for responding to disappointment in this world. One of the um, most common strategies in the history of the world is something that's traditionally been called detachment. This is the idea that you should not let your heart get too attached to the things of this world because everything is ending, everything is temporary, this world is temporary, this world is an illusion. You see this idea in Buddhism. You also see it in the ancient Greek philosophy called Stoicism, which actually is very popular again uh, in our contemporary world. Stoicism. So one of the famous Stoic philosophers was a guy named Epictetus. There he is looking very stoic, and he famously said that when you kiss your child goodnight, you should silently whisper, tomorrow you will die. <laughs> Detachment is a way of not letting your heart get too attached to the things of this world because it's all coming to an end. Now, there's another very common strategy of dealing with the disappointment of this world. We could call that strategy the live for today strategy. You know, in Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams said, carpe diem, seize the day, seize the day. The, the, the live for today strategy says, look, okay, everything in this world is coming to an end. It's temporary. And when you die, it's just lights out. You're going to be fertilizer, but it's just the circle of life. It's just the way things are. So let's not worry about it too much. Let's just take uh, as much joy in life today as we can, because today is all we have. As Thoreau said, suck the marrow out of life. Now, here's the thing. Um, if this world really is temporary, or if it really is just an illusion, it, then everything in this world ultimately is going to come to an end one day. And if that's the case, then each one of these responses has its own kind of internal logic. I mean, they each make a lot of sense within their own worldview. But here's the thing I want us 
to notice, if we take the detachment route, don't let your heart get too attached to the things of this world. And basically what we're saying is we're, we don't want to let, we don't want to feel our desires too much. But if we take the live for today route, in other words, just try to enjoy life as much as possible because today is all you have, then basically what we're doing is trying not to think too much about our disappointment. Each of these responses is saying to respond to the disappointment of life, either we don't feel our desires too much or we don't think about our disappointment too much. In other words, the way to deal with disappointment is either to be less emotional or less rational. And I know that's a bit of an oversimplification, oversimplification, but it does clarify the options for us a little bit. Either way, it means becoming just a little bit less human. Jesus, when he's turning water into wine, Jesus is saying, I have an alternative for you. It's called new creation. It's not ignoring your desire or ignoring your disappointment. It's transforming your experience of disappointment by fulfilling your deepest desires for a world that never ends, a world that will never run out, a world that will never come up lacking for a wine that will never fail. But there's a problem, and that leads to our next point. We've just looked at the wine in this story, but next we need to look at the jars. Because remember, uh, in a shame-honor culture, to run out of wine at a wedding was a major social fail. I mean, this couple had incurred shame and guilt as a result of their failure. So by providing wine for the wedding, Jesus is rescuing this couple from the shame and the guilt that they've incurred. But it's really interesting the way he does it. Notice it says that there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now, these six stone water jars were, notice how it puts it, for the Jewish rites of purification. Here's what this means. Um, in the Bible, for any Jewish person, their whole way of life and worship, including weddings, revolved around this idea that, that this world was created good, but this world is also corrupted by sin, evil, and death. And therefore, the only way that we can come into the presence of God is if we are cleansed from those things. Because remember, the wine in this passage is pointing to God's vision of a new creation world, but the only way we can live in that new creation world is if we become new creation people. The jars in this passage are pointing to the whole sacrificial system that provided the cleansing we need, the transformation we need, so that we could be new creation people who are now able to live in God's new creation world. Which means that we have a problem, because in our culture, this idea that we need cleansing from sin and shame and guilt, very few things are more offensive in our culture especially because we don't live in a shame-honor culture. We live in a therapeutic culture. In a therapeutic culture, the most important thing is that we would always affirm ourselves and that we should always feel good about ourselves. In a therapeutic culture, anything that makes you feel bad about yourself is bad. And so, obviously, we struggle with this whole idea of, of needing cleansing from sin, shame, and guilt. Now, listen, it's important to say something here. Um, hyper-focusing on sin and shame and guilt to the exclusion of anything else has done a lot of harm to people. Hyper-focusing 
on shame and guilt tears people down. It hurts people. It oppresses people. And religious people, especially Christians, are experts at doing this. How many people have been deeply wounded by the way that Christians wield the word sinner? There's no doubt that this is a huge problem, but we don't get rid of the problem by ignoring shame and guilt. In fact, ignoring shame and guilt only makes the problem worse. And even more than that, ignoring shame and guilt prevents us from understanding who Jesus really is. You know, in our culture, we love the idea of Jesus as a great moral teacher or Jesus as a social activist or as a spiritual guru. So in our culture, there's this narrative, really, it's more like a polemic now, that, um, that all this stuff about Jesus' death on the cross being a sacrifice to save people from sin, all of that was added many years later by other Christians many years after Jesus died, but none of that was ever a part of Jesus' original understanding of himself and his mission. But this passage is one of many in the Bible that say, au contraire. In fact, every week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we quote Jesus who said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, in other words, if we want to take Jesus seriously, we have to take sin seriously. But that's hard for us, especially in our culture. So let me give you just a couple of thoughts to kind of help us along. First, taking sin seriously means taking justice seriously. You know, especially in our culture, we live in a culture that is more committed to justice and more passionate about justice probably than any other culture in the history of the world. And so we know instinctively that evil and wrongdoing, it doesn't just suggest justice like, oh, take it or leave it. No, we know that evil and wrongdoing demands justice. And so our passion for justice in our culture is one of the few places that we're willing to set aside temporarily this idea that no one should ever feel bad about themselves. Because in order for real justice to be accomplished in this world, it's necessary that the perpetrators of injustice come face to face, that they are held accountable, that they are confronted with some uncomfortable truths about themselves. So here's the question. Why would we expect God to care any less about justice than we do? If we say we want to believe in God, but it's got to be a God who cares about justice, then what we're really asking for is a God who's going to challenge us to face some very uncomfortable truths about ourselves. Taking sin seriously means taking justice seriously. But second, taking sin seriously means taking human dignity seriously. You know, another common idea is that this biblical concept of sin, it's just too negative. It demeans human beings. It demeans human dignity. Actually, the opposite is true. Nobody has helped me think more clearly about this than C.S. Lewis. He once said this, the better stuff a creature is made of, the cleverer and stronger and freer it is, then the better it will be if it goes right, but also the worse it will be if it goes wrong. It's kind of a deep idea. The better something is made, then the better it will be if it goes right, but the worse it will be if it goes wrong. And so he says, think about a cow. Have you ever seen an evil cow? You walk along and you see a pasture of cows and there's one cow there just terrorizing all the other cows, tipping them over while they're sleeping. 
throwing cow pies at them. No, of course not. You'll never find a really evil cow because cows were never meant to be all that much to begin with, but human beings were. Think about what Hitler could have been if he had gone right. Think about what Martin Luther King might have been if he had gone wrong. Friends, far from being too negative about humanity, the biblical concept of sin is a jaw-dropping affirmation of the dignity and the glory for which human beings were created. Or we could put it like this, sin does not define human beings, sin distorts human beings. Sin does not define human beings, it distorts human beings. It's kind of like, have you ever seen one of those old glorious houses here in St. Louis that have fallen into ruin? You would never look at a house like that and say, what an awful house. You would say, what a tragedy, because that house, that's not what that house was meant for. In other words, the ruin doesn't define the house. The ruin distorts the house. When Jesus transforms the water into the wine, do you see now what this is pointing us to? The wine points to God's vision of a new creation world, but the, the jars are pointing to our need to be new creation people who can live in God's new creation world. But the jars, the whole sacrificial system, the rituals, all of the cleansings, all of that can never really transform us into being the new creation people that we need to be in order to live in God's new creation world. That's why what Jesus is doing with these jars is so significant. He's showing us how the transformation actually takes place. How does that happen? Well, that leads to our last point. We've looked at the wine. We just looked at the jars. But lastly, we need to take a look at the bridegroom. Remember, um, this passage is about a wedding, and a wedding was always a big deal back then. Uh, but many people have noticed about this story um, that it really looks like Jesus is being kind of rude to his mother in this passage. She says, Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, there's debate about this, okay? My take, based on my study this week, one of the things I found out is that in the original language, it's probably, it's likely that this word woman is not as rude in the original language as it sounds to us in modern English. And yet, at the same time, this is still a pretty distant, kind of cold, standoffish way to talk to somebody, especially your mother. So something is troubling Jesus here, and he tells us what it is when he says, my hour has not yet come. So let me translate the conversation for you. Jesus' mother says, Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus says, what does that have to do with me? It's not time for me to die yet. What? Here's what's happening. Remember, the wine is an image. The wine and the feasting is an image of God's new creation world. There's another image that shows up in this passage that is a very common image in the Bible. Over and over again, the Bible talks about God being the bridegroom of his people. You see this in Isaiah. You see it especially in the book of Hosea. God is the bridegroom of his people. And when you take both of these images, the image of wine and feasting and the image of the bridegroom, and you put them together, the Bible is inviting us to see a God who's inviting us, not just to any old feast, but to a wedding feast. The Bible says that God's new creation is like a wedding feast, and God is the bridegroom. Did you know that throughout his ministry, that 
gospel accounts of Jesus' life show us this, that Jesus frequently referred to himself as the bridegroom. He's saying, I am God because I am the bridegroom. So why would providing wine at a wedding make Jesus think about his own death? Are you starting to see? It's because he's thinking about his own wedding day. Jesus is the bridegroom. Who's the bride? It's you and me. The reason Jesus is so troubled here, so sad here, is because he knows that the only way we can get to the altar is if he dies to get us there. The only way Jesus can transform the jars of the old sacrificial system into the wine of new creation is through his blood, because that's what the wine is. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin. Now think about how wine is normally made. Normally, grapes have to be crushed. And then you have to be put into a wine press that's like a vice that squeezes all the juice out of them. And then they have to be put into a dark place to ferment for a while. You look at the the wine in this passage, that water got turned into wine pretty easily. Why? Because Jesus is the one who was crushed on the cross. Jesus is the one who was put into the vice, into the wine press of God's justice and all the sin, evil, and death in this world. His blood was squeezed out and Jesus was put into the dark tomb of death in order to free us from our tombs of sin, evil, and death and transform us into the new creation people we need to be in order to live in God's new creation world. Now, if this is true, and it is, then what would that mean for our lives, practically speaking? Well, way more than we can talk about in the brief time we have left, but let me offer you just a few thoughts by way of application. If this is true, first, this means that you should let yourself be delighted in by the bridegroom. You know, God is not, this passage is showing us, God is not only your creator and your king who has authority over you. He is that, but he's also the bridegroom who delights in you, who exalts in you, who is ravished by you. I know that's shocking language, but that's what Jesus is showing us in this passage. Taking sin seriously, taking our shame and our guilt seriously. For us as human beings, so often that means the way we want to respond to that is we want to run and hide. Because that's what shame does. It makes us hide. But Jesus is saying, you are my beloved. You are my bride. Come out of your sin. Come out of your shame. Come out of your hiding. And let me clothe you in radiant wedding garments and delight over you. The love of Jesus is the beginning of a delight that we have always longed for but never felt worthy of. Because just as we constantly feel disappointed in life, our default mode as human beings is that we fear that God is disappointed with us. God is not disappointed with you. God delights in you. Let yourself be delighted in by the bridegroom. Secondly, do what he says. I love it the way Mary tells the servants in the passage, do whatever he tells you. Now think about it. Um, The servants in this passage Do you think they knew what Jesus was about to do? No way. They're probably thinking, what does this guy think he's doing? Telling us what's going on here? But they did it anyway. In the same way, um, when we come to faith in Jesus, one of the things that means is that we do what he says. Now, the servants in this passage, they didn't really know who Jesus was fully and truly, at least not yet. But we've been given a gift 
a greater insight into Jesus than the servants in this passage had. So for instance, at the very end of the passage, it tells us that this, the first of Jesus' signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory. That means showing people who he is, and his disciples believed in him. That word believed doesn't just mean intellectually believing things about Jesus. It's not a cognitive thing so much as it means trusting, devoted, being devoted to Jesus. It, literally, it says believed into Jesus. That means that, look, there are all kinds of things in the Bible that Jesus tells us to do. In our culture especially, a lot of those things we don't understand, and a lot of those things, even if we do understand it, we don't like it. This is saying, do it anyway. Because the, the more you see about Jesus, the more that enables you to trust him. Or we can say it like this, believing in Jesus means that you see enough about who he is to obey him even when you can't see what he's doing. Believing, trusting in Jesus, being devoted to Jesus means that you see just enough about who he really is to obey him even when you can't see what he's really doing. Friends, especially if you're exploring faith this morning, maybe up until this point you thought, wow, I don't know much about Jesus, great teacher, maybe social activist, maybe spiritual guru. You see just a little bit about him. I'm hoping maybe this morning you're beginning to see just a little bit more about who Jesus really is. If your window into Jesus is getting expanded just a little bit, what would it mean for your response to Jesus to expand just a little bit as well? I'm not saying that you have to give your whole life to him yet, but what would it be like if you're seeing just a little bit more of Jesus to accommodate your response to Jesus just a little bit more? In other words, what would it be like to get out on the road and just start following him? See what that's like. Taste what that's like. You know, you can always have your will and your life back any old time. You can have your disappointment and your misery back any old time you want. Jesus is not going to stop you. But believing in Jesus means you see enough about who he is to obey him, even when you can't see what he's doing. So first, let him delight in you. Second, do what he says. But third, taste the joy while you wait. Taste the joy while you wait. Remember what we said at the beginning, life is disappointment. In this world, the wine will always fail. And um, when we experience disappointment in life, we're going to be tempted either to not let ourselves feel our desires too much or to not think about our disappointment too much. But this promise that we get in this passage of new creation, this promise of this wedding feast of the Lamb, means that in the midst of your waiting, in the midst of your disappointment, in the midst of all the sorrow, of all the wine of this world that's constantly failing us, that you can have a taste of a joy that will never fail. It's just a taste, but it's real, and it's meant for you to transform your experience of disappointment in this world, because life is disappointing. And especially in the context of this passage, let me just be really specific for a moment. Many of you are married, but it's hard. Many of you used to be married, but you're not anymore, and that's hard too. Many of you are not married, but you want to be, and that's hard. And many of you are married, but you have some inkling that you might never be married in life, and that's really hard too. But for every single one of us, we're waiting in the midst of the disappointment in life for the fulfillment of our ultimate desires. And that's hard, but here's the thing. This passage shows us that Jesus is waiting too. 
Jesus is the bridegroom. He's still waiting for his wedding day. Jesus is still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of his desires, which means that in the midst of your waiting, you've got somebody who's waiting with you, bringing a joy into your life, because whether you're married or not married, whatever your state is in this world, it's temporary. If you're a follower of Jesus, ultimately our destiny is to be married to Jesus at the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's what we're meant for. That means that Jesus is waiting too. He's waiting with you in the midst of the disappointment of life. So friends, here's what we do. We, um, we let Jesus delight in us. We do what he says and we taste the joy. We learn how to sip that joy while we wait in the midst of the disappointment of life. We let him delight in you, let him pour out his love on you. We do what he says. Believing in Jesus means that you see just enough about who he is to obey him, even when you can't see what he's doing, and you taste the joy while you're in the midst of the waiting. It doesn't take away the disappointment of life. It does transform your experience of disappointment by giving you a taste of the coming joy for which this present world was headed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your promise. And Lord, your promise is golden. Your promise is good. Your promise was guaranteed and validated and, and, and stamped in gold for us through your death on the cross, Lord Jesus, and your resurrection from the dead. Lord, help us this morning to see more and more about who you are, and that the more we see of you, the more we'd be um, enabled and empowered to trust in you and to obey you, to follow you faithfully. And Lord, even more than that, to, to taste your love for us, and to taste the joy you have for us so that even in the midst of life, which can be so disappointing, we would know the joy for which we're headed and that would transform our experience of, of our lives even now. And Father, we pray also that you would help us to be a taste of that joy to the world around us, which desperately needs it. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.